power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You may have heard those words before. The famous words were penned by Lord Acton, and they've been repeated frequently since the 19th century when he wrote them. And the underlying assumption of them is that when we find ourselves in positions of power, that power tends to shape us. Now, there may be ethical and good intentions when one begins in a position of authority, but from there, it is a slippery slope, making small concessions here and there until we find that we don't recognize ourselves anymore when we look in the mirror. The alluring pool of power is that when we wield influence, we don't want to let it go. Power has the opportunity, gives us the opportunity to have control and dominion over our lives, or at least so we think. Right? We, we think that we have authority to make our lives better, maybe helping others along the way, but our primary focus is often turned inward. When something comes to disrupt that power dynamic, we don't want to let it go. We'll fight and we'll claw to maintain that hold on whatever dominion that we want to call our own. Maybe you've experienced this in life. You can see this in relationships with work. Maybe it's how you parent your kids. It can be the way that you manage your money, the way you interact with people on social media, how you treat the clerk at the grocery store who's checking you out. But the truth is, we all have some arena where we can exercise dominion. We all have some space that we can exercise power, and if we're not careful, that power can corrupt us. Let me provide a lesson of this in church history. So the Puritans. The Puritans were immigrants to America to escape the religious persecution that they had experienced in Europe. Now, once they landed in Massachusetts, these Puritans created a new system of government, the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They moved from a position of weakness in Europe to one of strength and political power. And how did they respond to that power? With much of the exact same harshness that they had experienced themselves in Europe. There's a man by the name of Roger Williams. He was a, a person of influence in the community. And when he questioned some of the decisions by the colony's leaders, they had him excommunicated. They left him to die in the wilderness. Frankly, the only reason he didn't die is because of the assistance that he received from the Native Americans in the region. Now, Roger Williams was the individual who went on to found the colony of Rhode Island. And what was different about Rhode Island to Massachusetts is that his desire was to create space for, with religious liberty, where religious minorities could find sanctuary. Because, you know, if you learned about the Puritans in school, they probably taught you that they were escaping religious persecution from Europe in order to create this kind of place of religious liberty here. But they didn't want that. All they wanted to do was they wanted to create a system where they, as the dominant religion, had and maintained political power. 
So anyway, Roger Williams created this, this space in Rhode Island that was meant to actually provide religious liberty and space for disagreement. Roger Williams's writings were influential in the formation of religious liberty and the foundation of our, our nation by our forefathers. Scott Jathani, uh, who's a, um, I don't know what he is, he's a podcast host right now. He used to be an editor of Christianity Today, and he, he said this, talking about Williams. He said, Williams argued that it wasn't enough for per- persecuted religious minorities to separate and establish their own colony. He said, because once they are at the helm of the ship of state, he's using a a boating metaphor here, once they're at the helm of the ship of state, they quickly forget that they were once under the hatches. In other words, history shows that the persecuted quickly become the persecutors once they have power. Now, I'm often reminded when I'm thinking about things like this of the words of my campus minister when I was in college. He said that we all need to have a healthy fear of our own depravity. We have to know that we are not invincible to the corrupting nature of sin. We have to recognize that we have at least the capacity for great evil, even if for the most part we're able to restrain it so that the world doesn't see it. In truth, we need to acknowledge that we are in need of a Savior. We need someone bigger, we need someone better than ourselves to hold us in check, to be that moral authority over us, to transform us and restrain us, our inclinations towards selfishness. Now, last week, we looked at the story of the Magi, these wise men coming from the East, religious figures of influence who came to find the newborn king of the Jews. Their response to Jesus was one of worship. But in order to get there, they had to pass through Jerusalem, where they interacted with the current king of Israel, Herod. And this morning, we're going to look at Herod and his response to Jesus, and it is not one of worship. If you want to pull out your Bibles, Bible apps, or just listen as I read along, we're going to go back to Matthew chapter 2. The first section that we're going to look at is the same passage that we looked at last week, but we're going to look at it again, this time through the lens of Herod. And keep the passage open, because we're going to break it into, I think, two or three specific chunks. So Matthew chapter 2, let's start with verses 1 through 8. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. There's a quote from Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah... Are by no means least among the nations of, excuse me, among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. 
Right? As we saw last week, the wise men come from the east. They approach Herod in Jerusalem. They're trying to find this child, Jesus, whom they label as the king of the Jews. And they explicitly make known their plans to Herod, that their purpose is to worship the child. Now, Herod's, Herod's response to that is that he is disturbed. And the text says that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. Now, this reference to Jerusalem is not meant to be taken to mean all of the residents of the city. This is a shorthand reference to those in political and possibly religious authority, right? the leadership of the city. Right? Those who f- possessed power found themselves squirming a bit at the mention of a new king. Why? In short, I think this goes back to Lord Acton's quote, that power corrupts. Herod had this power that he didn't want to let go of. Now, here's the thing about Herod. Herod knows that he is not the rightful king of Israel. He was appointed there as a puppet king by the Roman Empire. It was an opportunity for him to have a power grab. He and all the other Jews of the day knew that the true and rightful king of Israel wasn't a lame duck monarch appointed by the pagans, but was an heir of the Davidic kingdom, of which Herod doesn't fit the bill. Now, if you've read or watched the final book or movie of Lord of the Rings, it's called Return of the King, there's a kingdom there called Gondor, and they're waiting for the return of their monarch. Hint, that's why it's called Return of the King. They're waiting for their true ruler to return. But in the meantime, you have a figure who is known as the steward of Gondor, a person with authority who is ruling in the stead of the king. Now, in the movie, you see this, uh, very, this, this image is kind of grafted into your mind because you have the steward sitting on his throne, his chair, which is a good six feet or more below the empty throne that you know is for the king. He doesn't dare sit on the king's throne because he knows he doesn't belong up there, but yet he wants to hold on to the authority that he has. In the narrative, in the story, the, 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 by the, the third age when all this happens, it's a guy by the name of Denethor II. And he's ruled as steward, but he's playing as king. And, and there's this rumor that the true king of Gondor has returned. And his last living son is, is, you know, appears to be allied with his cohorts. And Denethor loses it. You should watch the movie. He does. He goes crazy. He's outraged because he doesn't want to let go of the power that he and his family have accumulated in the king's absence. So it shouldn't be surprising that this news of a new king disturbed Herod. Frankly, Herod as a religious, or not a religious, excuse me, as a historical political figure was a bit neurotic. He's very well attested in the ancient records. And Herod had ten wives. He had lots of offspring as a result of those unions. It was not uncommon for him and his children to contend with one another, right, trying to usurp one another, get the, the, a leg up on each other. Herod, in his paranoia, had many of his family members and offspring imprisoned or executed in order to maintain his control, his fist over his throne. But now what's more, add on to that kind of, uh, that, you know, his kind of neurotic tendencies... You've got these emissaries coming from Babylon in the east, looking for this new king. Now, Herod began to fear, was there an uprising coming from the east? Right? Were these visitors from the east going to spy out the land, join with this new king, and battle against him? Right? He had no fear of attack from the west. Right? He was allied with Rome. 
But Israel was on the eastern fringes of that Roman Empire, and Herod felt exposed. Right? Would war come from the Babylonians and unseat him? Right? These are the sort of things that are flying through Herod's mind as he's he likely flying. I can't say that for sure, but, but given kind of piecing the, the historical puzzle together, it's probably some of what's going on as he's entertaining the wise men. But Herod, like the Hebrew people of Jesus' day, they just don't get it. Herod thinks, he, his worst fear is that a physical war is coming. But what we know is that the incarnation of Jesus brings a battle on the spiritual plane that Herod never would have dreamt of. While he's concerned about contending for political power, Jesus is here to supplant the authority that we hold over our very own lives. So we see in our text that Herod was duplicitous. He concocts a plan to try to, in his mind, secretly protect his throne. He plays nice with these visitors in order to gain the information necessary to preserve his rule. Look there, if you still got it open, in verse 4. He asks the theologians, his religious advisors, where the Christ was to be born. Notice the link that this makes. The Magi didn't say anything about the Messiah. Right? The Messiah is the Hebrew word equivalent of Christ in Greek. They merely said they were looking for the king of the Jews. But Herod makes the connection. He knows who the king of the Jews that they're referring to is. This long-awaited Messiah that has finally arrived. I highlighted this last week, but, but it bears repeating. Right, think about this for a minute. This is a figure, this Christ, this Messiah, that the Hebrew people have been waiting centuries, possibly even millennia or more, to come. For 400 years prior to this, there was not any authoritative written revelation from God. There was silence. But instead of being excited for this arrival, Herod can only think of himself and all that he has to lose. So he hatches a plan to try to snuff out this child. Let's go back to the text. We're going to drop down to Matthew 2, 13 to 15. Now when they, the wise men, had departed, this is departed from Jesus, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Now we're going to see in just a moment the lengths that Herod would go through in order to preserve his throne. But don't miss this. Even though hostility abounds, Herod's been, you know, making some plans behind the scenes. Those with power are trying to use it to oppress the weak. But in the midst of this, God is in control. God's plans cannot be thwarted, right? no matter what title you have before or after your name. And we see here, God provides a means to protect this vulnerable child, to keep him from harm, until it's time for Jesus to fulfill his calling, fulfill the atoning sacrifice that he's preparing for. I think this is important for us to understand, because I think it's easy for us to go through seasons where it feels like the very world is against us. But I want us to remember that God's promises can
cannot be stopped. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to live a suffering-free life. Far from it. So we're going to see in a few moments that is not the case. There are plenty of times when by all accounts the powerful flourish and the weak are victimized. This is not a promise that we will never be harmed. There is a reality of evil and brokenness in the world. And there's going to be times where we come face to face with that grief and sorrow. But in those times, I hope that we can cling to the hope that we have in God. Cling to the promises that God is at work in the world, working out His purposes. We may never see redemption in our lifetimes. That may not come. But we can be assured that it is coming, that the wicked will not flourish forever. Now, I want to note here in verse 13, the text says that Herod was going to search for Jesus to destroy or kill him. That's the same language. It's it's kind of interesting. I think Matthew is trying to make a point here. It's the same language that's used later in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 27, 20. But this time, in Matthew 27, it is the religious leaders who are trying to get the crowd to set Barabbas free and destroy or kill Jesus. Now, in both of these scenarios, I think what's the same, the assault against Jesus is because of a perceived threat to their power. Both want to destroy Jesus so that there is no hindrance for their continued use of power and influence. All right, but as we see in a moment, this journey of God's provision is not without cost. Let's finish by reading Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is a hard portion of Scripture to read. It's been called throughout church history as the slaughter of the innocent. In fact, the, the Feast of an Innocent is a, is a feast in the uh, more, more liturgical churches on December 28th where they remember the victims of this tragedy. Seeing that Jesus may have eluded him, Herod orders the death of all the boys two years old and younger. And he, he was able to get that approximate age because he ascertained from the wise men when that star appeared from the visit of the Magi. Herod is acting ruthlessly in order to preserve his power by putting to death any potential challenger to the throne. Now, in truth, we have no historical evidence of this action. There's nothing in the, in the testimony, the witness of, of history to this. And that's led some to suggest that Matthew, the author, is either embellishing or just kind of making this up altogether. But I want to contend that Bethlehem was a very small, rural community. It probably involved between 10 and 30 boys in the town. So these innocent lives that would have been lost, they wouldn't have been missed by history. They wouldn't have been anything of, anyone would have really raised an eyebrow at at that time. 
To us, we recognize this as evil, but to some extent, this genocide would have paled in comparison to some of Herod's more heinous crimes against humanity, his higher-profile actions. What I think Matthew was concerned with in sharing this is the grief in the moment. He's drawing from the prophetic tradition, citing from the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 31, I believe it's verse 15. And in this passage that he quotes from, you have Rachel, who is this personification of the mothers of Israel, watching as their children are being led into exile by the Babylonians. Symbolically, their nation is dead. Their line has ended. So they mourn and they weep. Nothing can comfort the grief that they feel. Much like the childless mothers in the town of Bethlehem, this is a visceral passage. But even in this citation that Matthew brings from Jeremiah, there is hope. Matthew doesn't explicitly cite it, but the very next verse in Jeremiah speaks of a time when the children would return to their land. It's followed a little bit later in Jeremiah chapter 31 with words of comfort that God is forming a new covenant with his people. What felt like the end of the world in that moment was not, in fact, the end. Hope was coming. This end of Matthew chapter 2, ending with the, the grieving of the mothers, tells the story of corruption, of abuse of those in power. The oppressors seek to preserve themselves at the expense of the more vulnerable. And at the end of our text, it appears that they win. The children are dead. The mothers mourn. They're grieving. They refuse to be comforted. But God says that's not how history ends. The story surrounding the birth of Jesus heralds the breakthrough of God's kingdom where the powerful will not last forever. Just as one day the sons of Israel would return to their homeland from exile, so too would these innocent children walk the earth once more with their Lord. Because the power of God is greater than the power of those who bring sorrow to others. We may think that it's the influencers, the wealthy, the oppressors, right, that they're the ones with power. But God reminds us that his power triumphs over all. I think Matthew ended Jeremiah's passage where he did to sit and stew in the grief, and we shouldn't move too quickly out of those feelings because hope has not yet arrived. We might feel that today. When we suffer, hope is coming, but it's not here right now. And it's okay to mourn. It's okay, it's okay to grieve in the midst of that. The oppressors appear to have won. But Hebrews, who were well acclimated with the Scriptures, knew the promises of God that were to come. That God was going to work His restoration that he would ultimately upend the powers of the world. And we see that coming through this child, Jesus Christ. Now, as we begin to wrap up, 
I want us to consider this in our lives and with one particular direction. There's probably a number of different ways we could go, but there's one thing that I want to ask. God has broken into history. Jesus has come. How will you receive him? Jesus is here, and just as Herod feared, he is a threat to our power. Will you receive Jesus like the magi who come to worship him, giving him gifts, surrender to his authority? Or will you respond like Herod? Assess the threat and attempt to terminate it. Get rid of this threat to your power and authority. When I was in college, one of the teaching tools that we used to think about the gospel and think about God's relationship in our lives was a picture of a chair. Just a little cartoon picture. And this chair was described as the throne of our lives. It is that seat of authority and decision-making for the self. And they would ask the question, who is sitting in that chair? Because in most cases, we are. We want to call the shots. We want to control our own destiny. We want to be able to make decisions for ourselves and have full autonomy and independence. But then Jesus comes around and he seeks to be the one who's sitting on that throne, sitting on that chair instead of us. Now, we might think that we're giving in to him. Right? We kneel at the altar call. We, we shed tears over our sin. We pray the sinner's prayer, inviting him into our hearts. But when push comes to shove, we want to get right back up on that throne. We question the direction that God is moving towards us. Like, what do you mean you want me to give, give up my time to serve the local food pantry? What do you mean you want me to buy lunch for that homeless person? They should have made better decisions in life. What do you mean you want me to let go of that resentment I have for my friends and forgive them? What do you mean I have to stop, fill in the blank, whatever activity is that's bringing me pleasure? When we are in a position to question the, the, the things that God is bringing before us, it means that we haven't really relinquished the throne. It means that God is our advisor. Right? We want to follow his advice, but we still want to remain the king or the queen. We want to still have full discretion for the decision-making of our lives. Jesus is not just a child to be admired in those manger scenes, those nativity scenes that you see. The path of God's kingdom is one of surrender. As Paul says in the New Testament, the path of the kingdom is one of death to self, so that we might live for Christ. What I hope we have been able to see this morning is a clear example of the corrupting nature of power. Herod had power that he did not want to let go of. And instead, he attempted to lash out at Jesus. I want us to think about what are those corrupting places, the corrupting nature of power in our lives. Because Jesus wants to take over. He wants to have that authority in our lives. And our response, is it one like Herod? Are we lashing at Jesus? And may, maybe we're not quite, you know, trying to put him to death per se. But at the very least, are we trying to keep him at arm's length? 
or are we surrendering to his rule and his authority? That as we close up our series around Advent, we celebrate that Jesus has been born, the King of the Jews, the King of you and me as well. How will we respond to his arrival? Join me in prayer. Lord, you have given us good things. You have shown your love for us. You have shown your faithfulness to us. Prevent us from taking advantage of that, becoming disenchanted with it, and just wanting to use you like a vending machine. Lord, may we not seek you just for your gifts, but for who you are. And Lord, who you are is Lord, is ruler, is authority over us. Lord, as we go about this week, be bringing to mind places in our lives where we have wanted to control, maintain that control of power in our lives. Whether it be with our family or our relationships or our our television-consuming habits, whatever it might be, chip away at that control. Chip away at our hard hearts that we might submit ourselves to you so that we might be transformed for your purposes. To love you more and to love our neighbors like ourselves. Continue to work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.